0: The four heavenly messengers are sickness and disease. You're wondering why I'm giving this talk. The first heavenly messenger is sickness and disease. The second is old age. The third is death. And the fourth is renunciation. One of the reasons I'm resurrecting this talk is because um, sickness or disease, old age, death, have been really powerful teachers for me. And I think that we all touch these teachings in our life over and over in many different ways. And if we can grasp what these teachings are, they help us give birth to the lightheartedness of renunciation of letting go, and within that renunciation is the total freedom which is present when we let go. I was given a teaching on the heavenly messenger of sickness recently, and I wanted to talk about it because I feel like I was given another gift. So I'm a bit dazed, <laughs> still, and I don't have a lot of short-term memory, so please bear with me <laughs> if I forget what I'm talking about. <clears throat> so you might wonder what the why is it called for, heavenly messengers? And this is a story from the Buddha's time, when the historical Buddha was a young prince. His father, a king, didn't want the prince, his son, to see anything that would disturb his mind. So he arranged for his son to live in three different palaces for different seasons so that he would have this total pleasure in his life. And the prince heard that outside of these palaces that there were wonderful plants and birds and lakes and fountains, but he could never go outside. The, the palaces. And so he decided he wanted to go out. So the king had the whole city clean the whole place out of anybody sick or old or diseased or dead. Yeah. And a young deva is said to have caused an old decrepit man, you know, with bald hair and no teeth and bent over in pain. You know, appearing in the street before the Buddha, or the prince at that time. And he was so shocked, he asked the driver of his chariot what was that, and the driver said, well, that's what is called old. And he got so upset, because he'd never seen anything like this, that he went back to a palace. So this kind of situation happened four times. Each time he went out, a deva, which I think is really interesting, that a deva would conjure up an image of first of a sick person or an old person, then a sick person, then a dead person. Uh, And the fourth (coughs) image that a deva uh, conjured up for the prince was a renunciate. It's called samana, one who has let go, one who wears the robes. And this is part of what the prince said when he had seen these four heavenly messengers. He thought, I too am subject to aging, not safe from aging, and so it cannot befit me to be shocked and humiliated on seeing another who is aged. When I considered this, the vanity of youth left me. When the prince considered not being safe from sickness and death, in the same way, the vanity of health and the vanity of life left him. So the prince decided to leave home, and his father was quite upset about it. Uh, But the prince wouldn't change his mind. He said to his father, if you speak to me about a fit time and an unfit time for becoming a renunciate, my answer is that death knows nothing of one time or another but is busy, busy gathering victims at all times. So the prince left this extraordinary, luxurious, comfortable life it's like the the deva really helped him to wake up to the world of suffering and I th- he said that at this point in time in his life that he saw the world as an all consuming fire and for me that means that he really used the four heavenly messengers as a as a way to wake up you know, it's, it's like there's this some vega, or spiritual urgency that we can develop a commitment to give birth to understanding and the freedom that comes from this understanding. So hopefully these four heavenly messengers will help inspire us to wake up and to be liberated I had a teacher from Sri Lanka, a monk called, his name was Sivali. And just before he died, he looked at me and I called his eyes mango eyes. He had the sweetest, the sweetest eyes in the world that I'd ever seen. And he just looked at me with a huge smile on his face and he said, The body is hopeless. (laughs) And then he said, You mustn't ever be afraid of the pain. The body is hopeless. You mustn't ever be afraid of the pain. Old age can be a difficult time because the body often breaks down and the mind starts to wear away a bit. (laughs) <laughs> and we can't always be comforted with this idea that we're going to get better like when we're younger and many of the experiences life experiences in life that often bring us fulfillment or pleasure don't yield that for us anymore and it's often quite a difficult time if we haven't worked hard to learn how to find happiness deep within that isn't based on sense pleasure or experience you know, you can imagine how difficult it is to face this slipping away and slipping of, away of things that have supported us and we've held on to one of the things that's similar to old age is the way that we start letting go on retreat of all the things that have we've used to prop up our sense of an I or a me in our life. and The idea is that we um, begin to just be, rather than to fill our moments with doing and doing. I was trying to, as I drove here, think of how many days it was till Christmas. (laughs) And you know those signs, 24 more days to Christmas, 23 more days to Christmas in everybody's mind, just gets so contracted from this constant having to do and do and do. The idea of being on retreat is that we learn not to get so caught up in doing where we forget to just be over and over again in the present moment, just as it is. We even have to learn to just be with not being able to be. Even we learn to be with unbearable times or seemingly unworkable times. Needless to say, the emphasis on youth in this culture becomes more and more. staggering, so whenever the teeth fall out or hair starts to fall out or gray or the body decays and the skin becomes wrinkled and there's chronic pain or whatever, um, if our idea of happiness is dependent on what we look like, you know, it gets pretty shaky. And our well-being, our our whole sense of well-being, if it's based on how we appear, is just Um, fundamentally shaken. If we're inspired by this heavenly messenger of old age, we can develop a contentment and a hidden trust that isn't dependent on anything. It's an unshakable kind of well-being. When I was in New Zealand this spring doing a 10-day self-retreat, in the cabin, there was this little tiny mirror, about this big, uh, and about maybe the eighth day into the retreat, I just kind of, you know, shined it up and looked in the mirror. And I rarely take the time, you know, in my life to just, you know, take a good look. <laughs> Especially as I get older, <laughs> I just kind of avoid the subject totally. So I just looked in the mirror and I took a good look and it was like, hey honey, you are really aging. <laughs> look, at look at these lines, whoa. And so many of the people I know in Honolulu, you know, they're getting facelifts and they're doing this and they're doing that and it's like, gee, I can really get it, you know. <laughs> no, no one better doing it." <laughs> It's terrible. (laughs) You know, in the culture, it's just like the pressure, you know, not to have a line, you know, it's really, (laughs) really hard. There's also, um, on the other hand, in the culture, a lack of being able to appreciate the wisdom of elders. It's like there is no training in this culture you know to to really understand that if we open to old age that this incredible wisdom develops and that we can access this elders who have opened to old age learn from life that old age is the, a time of fulfillment and a completion of the circle this is a poem that reminds me of the transformative quality of old age that leads to wisdom. I can't pronounce his name. I think it says Sagyu. He said that winter has withered everything in this mountain place. Just thinking of winter as old age. Winter has withered everything in this mountain place. Dignity is in its isolation now, and beauty in the cold clarity of its moon. Dignity in the cold clarity of its moon. Dignity in this deep understanding that comes from the letting go, the withering. This is a Quotation from an artist from her journal, her name is Anne Truitt. She said, I'm so thankful to have lived into the beginning of old age, for I am coming to understand its usefulness. It seems to me that I am aging into impersonality, as if I were slowly and in the most ordinary way becoming valuable. My personal experience is so objectified by its years that it is accessible to others without much engagement of my ego. I have noticed this kind of impersonal distance in people older than I, and I wondered what it would feel like, and now I know, and I like it. It is possible to age gracefully, but I doubt if anybody would say it's easy. Um, Stephen's Stephen's parents have been really inspiring to me. They're 82 and 83 now, and his mother, uh, she just never stops learning. And she has a kind of elegance in the aging process that I find amazing. And she had uh, several operations on her eyes this winter. And so Steve gave her the book, uh, Full Catastrophe Living, by Johnny kabat She read it. And one day I walked in the house, and here she was doing yoga for the first time in her life. <laughs> And then she started meditating, and, and it was incredible. She, she went into the operation so strengthened and, and inspired, and she came out and she said, you know, that helped me so much. I wish you had told, told me about it before, and it's
1: like, <laughs> <laughs> you <Yeah. laughs> <laughs>
0: And then his uh, father picked me up at the airport recently on one of my coming back from trips, teaching trips, and they decided to take me out to dinner. So we were driving uh, along, and his father could not remember where he was. He had no idea where the restaurant was, and it was so interesting. He just said, you know, where are we going? You know, He goes, where are we going? <laughs> And he just kind of, it was no problem, you know, it was just, (laughs) it was just okay. And they're, you know, they're really slowing down a lot. Uh, It's amazing to me how much they're slowing down and how much they can't remember things and they'll tell you a story, you know, 20 times, (laughs) you know, just like it's the first time. And his mother said to me just before I left that she said, you know, now that I'm in my 80s, I don't want to miss one moment. And then Stephen has been a guru for me because he's just four years older than me. You know, so I get to see his hair going gray and, you know, his uh, eyes going and his, you know, more and more glasses. You know, every couple months they get stronger (laughs) and stronger. (laughs) And at first he refused to bring them to the talks, you know, and he's holding (laughs) out here and I'm like, come on, Steve, (laughs) I think you better surrender here. Uh, You know, but then I'm noticing, you know, It's interesting. (laughs) So he's preparing me for what happens when I get to be that age. (laughs) So the first heavenly messenger is old age, and the second heavenly messenger is sickness or disease or accidents. (coughs) Remember when... Almost everyone had the flu at the beginning of this course. <laughs> you know, it's amazing how much uh, you know. There was this, you know, fighting or it, or people were afraid of it, and people were freaking out if the person next to them had it. You know, and then you know, more and more people succumbed, and then there was a the kind of surrender that was really beautiful. Uh, Mostly. (laughs) And you know, you come to retreat and there's usually something, you know, back pain, knee pain, uh, neck pain, whole body pain, whatever. And often if our bodies break down or intense physical sensations occur, there can be this kind of resistance, feeling that it isn't fair, or that if only I didn't have these strong sensations, then I could practice. And we really lose touch, actually, with the uh, blessing of any kind of health that we've been given in life. And actually, I know, I really know of no better teaching uh, than sickness or disease to cut through uh, the idea that we're the body and so uh, il- illness and sickness can be seen as the practice. You know, it's like a gift at times to have illness <laughs> because it helps us to see through the illusion of my body. And we really never know when our bodies are going to break down. I remember the first time that uh, I had to do years of lying meditation and I just kept Struggling with it and struggling with it and thinking that it was ruining my, you know, precious meditation practice, uh, I kept falling asleep. <laughs> and then I started to realize, after, you know, after years of surrendering to it, and I could sit again, uh, that I had, you know, there was this huge shift, and that I had let go of a lot of striving. You know, and it was only in retrospect that I could see that you know the horizontal position just doesn't lend itself to striving. (laughs) In fact, (laughs) it usually lends itself to you know unconsciousness. (laughs) And there is there is a great teaching in it. You know, there's a kind of surrender that one can bring into the vertical position. Often we get these milder irritants, you know, when we're on retreat. For me, that takes the form sometimes of um, I rarely have a moment when I can breathe through my nose. I, you know, most of the time I'm breathing through my mouth, and so swallowing, you know, there's this swallowing and swallowing and swallowing, and <laughs> I would have these two kinds of aversion to the swallowing. Um, Constant swallowing. The first is that I had aversion because I thought it was ruining my concentration. You know, it just kept pulling me away from what I was trying to be with. <laughs> and then there was this fear of aversion of how people were, you know, judging it. And you know, when the hall is really quiet and you swallow and it's like it echoes. In the meditational. And then, you know, it kind of travels to Barry and Peter Shannon. And then it kind of goes out into the universe, and you think, oh, I'm bothering every being in the universe (laughs) by swallowing. It's just (laughs) incredible. And then I had this incredible insight. Um, You know, I tried acceptance. (laughs) And I realized that I could just let go of control and be with the whole process. And I never, I never, I had no idea what the experience of swallowing was. You know, I just had so much resistance to it that I'd never experienced it. So I really decided to be interested in it. So just moment to moment being with the tongue starting to dry out, the tip of the tongue, middle of the tongue, the back of the tongue, the upper throat the lower throat, and then the saliva, you know, the growing saliva, the growing saliva, and then <laughs> fear of drowning.
1: <laughs>
0: uh, uh-oh. Time to swallow. Swallowing.
1: <laughs>
0: and at that moment, I realized that swallowing saved my life.
1: <laughs> it was just... It was... In, <laughs> <laughs> so, so
0: please if you, if you ever have to swallow be grateful you know it's It's really not a
1: problem <clears throat>
0: One of the other kind of major irritants that I have when I sit is that I usually am allergic to everything. Uh, So I rarely, you know, there's like one room at IMS, a yogi room that I'm not allergic to, just one. And there's this kind of fragility wherever I go that, you know, I'm usually allergic to the meditation hall, I'm usually allergic to the room I'm in. So whenever there's this place, that I find that has, you know, just warmth, shelter, you know, reasonable um, conditions. I feel so grateful. And there's this kind of motivation to practice because I never know if I'll have those conditions. And actually, you know, it's really been inspiring for me, rather than a problem. The first time I noticed this is when I went to England. and. Um, you know, the meditation hall was really mildewy and there were these wet wool blankets and wet wool floor, and the room was full of wet wool. (laughs) Everything. uh, (laughs) And I came back to IMS and there was this room I could practice in. And that, that I just, um, I just was so motivated, more motivated than I'd ever been to practice. So if you think, uh, you know, these minor and major irritants are uh, an impediment or an interruption. Actually, they're uh, teachings to surrender to and gifts. Um, so the thing that inspired this talk was uh, I've had these symptoms over the last month of Jardia, but I didn't know what giardia was. It was just symptoms of parasites. And I, by the time the fall came, things were sort of bad. So I started getting tool t- stool tests and nothing showed up, but I knew something was off. <laughs> it was very clear that something was really off. So I finally went to New York City and I got a diagnosis. Yes, you have parasites, you have giardia. So they give you this very, very strong poison basically you know, to kill the parasites. So I started sending meta <laughs> to the Jardia beings. Um, and I'm incredibly sensitive, you know, even to an aspirin. You know, never mind poison. <laughs> so the first sign of problems was I lost my brain. And <laughs> And it was just incredible to see this deterioration of the possibility of being mindful, and I, I had this one moment where I was holding the keys to the truck I've been driving, and I was looking at them. It's kind of like, you know, that before you know mindfulness, what it is, it's just like complete blank, it's like <laughs> seeing, but you don't know what you're seeing, and I, I couldn't remember where the keys were. And they were right there, and it was just like this amazing practice of just not remembering anything. You know, I wouldn't remember what I was doing, where I was, and then would be like, "Okay, just be in the present moment." <laughs> and I'd have to wait and wait and wait until I like got some idea of what I was doing. Um, so there was that first loss of the ability to remember, and then. The second loss, I lost the ability to sleep. And I was starting, I'd hallucinate all night, you know, just amazing hallucinations. And I thought, well, things are really going well. You know, for me, for my sensitivity, loss of brain, loss of sleep, fine. So then then I thought, okay, things are going okay. And then there was loss of body. And I began to feel, I just had images, (laughs) this isn't very uplifting, but I had images, (laughs) I kept having these images of what it would be like to be a rat, you know, dying of poisoning. You know, it it was just incredible to start realizing how much this happens in this world. And I started to get these horrible aches and pains and sweats and fever and I couldn't Keep, I couldn't stay up for. Two, I couldn't get up for two days and nauseous and diarrhea and no sleep and um, at one point when I threw up the blast, you know, one of the pills, I realized that I shouldn't take any form. <laughs> and so I thought, I wonder who won—me <laughs> or the Jorya beings—and it's not very clear who's won yet. Uh, and then I had this thought. I bet the Jardia are going through just what I've been going through. <laughs> and it was just this moment of realizing you know, that you know, this whole body was going through this poisoning, you know, the, all the beings in it, <clears throat> and I thought, well, okay, I'll have compassion for myself, compassion for the rats, compassion for the Jardia. Uh, So this morning when I could actually get up there was such a sense of gratefulness for being alive. You know, to actually experience the snow, experience the clouds in the blue sky, in the snow. So the second heavenly messenger is very important because we realize the preciousness of life itself through these experiences and the quality of surrender that it takes to be grateful for life. And in this way, you know, it's like that, those moments of realizing this, uh, the gratefulness is very, very deep. And I think that we can really bring this into our practice, because. One moment, one mind moment of mindfulness is really incredible, and we get this idea. You know, we have this um, striving and expectation, which which kills any appreciation for mindfulness in the moment. You know, and you can't, you can't control it. You know, you absolutely can't control the mind going off, but we can appreciate a moment here again. That's all we do. Oh, back. <laughs> Great. <laughs> and then there are the serious diseases where we really have to face you know, the actual terminating process, the dying process, and face our mortality. I think that we can often feel a helplessness when we come to face especially with someone close to us. For me at first was my mother watching her dying of cancer and it's just such a hard process to watch someone go through and I'd have aversion to it and I'd feel helpless and and I couldn't understand why somebody would have to suffer so much. But actually we can transform the suffering into a deeper and deeper compassion and a deeper and deeper understanding. So we transform this second heavenly messenger of, of sickness or illness or disease into compassion and wisdom for all beings. The third heavenly messenger is a dead person. Uh, the first is old age. The second is sickness or disease or accidents. And the third is death or a dead person. One of the things that I realized this last time of, of being so ill is just how difficult it is to stay conscious through the, you know, through being really sick or or dying. And actually a lot of the practice is preparing us for that. You know, it's not it's it's not a joke. It's really hard. There's a saying from a black African tribe that said, Death knows no kings. It is its own king. Living brings us to death. There's no other road. So there's no greater teacher than the road of death. And it's I think it's important to ask ourselves at time at times, you know, next to our death, what's so important? What thought, what thought could possibly be more important? And can we really live with this understanding that we never know what's going to happen? We never know when we're going to die. It could be the next mind moment. And and that's the truth. It's not like that's something that we conjure up. We don't know. It's, It's very arrogant. It's probably the greatest arrogance to think that we know. There's a poet named Galway Kinnell that said that knowledge beforehand of the end is surely among existence's most spectacular feats. Knowledge beforehand of the end is surely among existence's most spectacular feats. And it's spectacular because it cuts through our complacency. It's spectacular because it cuts through our foolishness. It really cleans up our act if we use death as an advisor. This facing death over and over each moment, the birth and death of consciousness, the birth and death of each moment, can help us to find the courage that we need to face impermanence and eventually death And being able to face death, or have death as an advisor, doesn't mean that we deny death. On the contrary, or I mean, it doesn't mean that we deny life. On the contrary, it means that if we face it, we'll be more and more alert, more aware, and more alive. Because we assent to being here fully. We say, yes, this moment. Yes, I'm alive. Great. You never know. So we live more fully. The more we are awake, the more we can affirm being alive here now. There are two ways that we can look at death. And the first one I mentioned, which is this ability to see that... um, All all things that take birth pass away. And actually, if you look very closely at the present moment, at anything, you'll see that it's disappearing. It's vanishing. In fact, you can't really be in the present moment because it's vanishing. It's vanishing. It's vanishing. And it's extraordinary uh, to, to face this kind of loss Uh, over and over and over again. So there's another perspective of death that we can see, which is the actual physical body dying. And this is a new poem by Mary Oliver called White Flowers. And I'll read just part of it. Last night in the fields, I lay down in the darkness to think about death. But instead, I fell asleep. When I woke, the morning light was just slipping in front of the stars and I was covered with blossoms. I don't know how it happened. I don't know if my body went diving down under the sugary vines in some sleep-sharpened affinity with the depths, or whether that green energy rose like a wave and curled over me, claiming me in its husky arms. Never in my life had I felt so plush or so slippery or so resplendently empty. Never in my life had I felt myself so near that porous line where my own body was done with, and the roots, and the stems, and the flowers began so resplendently empty. Sometimes it's hard for us to think of our body as just a constantly changing process as a part of this earth. And it's often helpful, I think, to go out into nature and even to just look at one flower or one tree, (laughs) one flower or one branch. And if one looks very closely, one will see that there's lots of birth, lots of dying, you know, that there isn't something that is just totally alive there, including our own body. It's interesting to ask ourselves, you know, well, what, where does the line between something outside my body and what my body is? So if one is eating, you know, where does the prune end? as one lifts the prune into the mouth, is the prune I when we put it in the mouth? Or is it still a prune? (laughs) You know, at what point do we call it me or mine or I? You know, and then when it comes out, is that me that goes into the toilet? (laughs) You know? i mean it's it's really important to ask these questions (laughs) it's especially if you have (laughs) Jardia. there was one point where i said diarrhea is good at the beginning diarrhea is good at the middle and diarrhea is good at the end So when we cut our hair, you know, and it's on the floor, is that me on the floor? No, it's anything. It's really important to keep that investigation or interest up. You know, who am I? What is the body? What is what is death? What is life? And to look and see this constantly changing process. I did this allergy testing recently. And in the doctor's offices it were these pictures of mites that these mites live on our eyelids and the mites live in the dust. The mites live incredible. I mean there's billions of them here right now. And every, t- <laughs> every time you take a step they go bouncing up into the air. And so on this <laughs> So on this piece of paper, there was this huge, you know, just huge picture, you know, blown up of this mite. And actually, what I'm allergic to is its excrement. You know? <gasps> <laughs> and I just thought, this is disgusting. <laughs> and then they're actually on our eyelids. and It's just, again, what better, what better information to help us cut through the sense of the body being mine, you know, or or that it's uh, you know important.
1: <laughs>
0: and this doesn't mean that we don't care for the body, you know, because there's this really um, health is really wonderful, and the more healthy we are, the more able we are to be practicing and to be mindful. But it's the attachment to the body as being me, or mine, that's the problem. There's a great saying from uh, a teacher who is not alive anymore. His name is Srinasargadatta. He said that, I was never born and I'm not going to die. And this is a very deep understanding. And it's interesting how it was put in the book. It's like he was pleading with people not to accuse him of taking birth, and not to accuse him of dying. No births, no death, no problem. There are many ways to try to hold the different perspectives of death in the heart. And so often if we hear, no body, no birth, no death, no problem, it sort of will feel superficial and trite. It's never that easy. The great teacher, Suzuki Roshi, who wrote Zen Mind, Beginner's Mind, it said that the last thing that he said before he died was, I don't want to die. And It's so beautiful. It's so honest, and it's it's really what happens. It's uh, an incredible surrender to be that honest. That that's that's what was happening just in that moment. And then there's another perspective that we can have, where whether it's uh, we see that it's no problem because we understand there is no birth or death on a very deep level, or if we have the sense that, yes, it is difficult. And we can also have the perspective of beginner's mind. And this is a poem, again, by Mary Oliver. It's called, When Death Comes. And I'm editing these a lot. When death comes like the hungry bear in autumn, when death comes and takes all the bright coins from his purse to buy me and snaps the purse shut, when death comes like the measle pox, when death comes like an iceberg between the shoulder blades, I want to step through the door full of curiosity, wondering, what is it going to be like, that cottage of darkness? When it's over, I want to say all my life I was a bride married to amazement. I, want, I was the bridegroom taking the world into my arms. When it's over, I don't want to wonder if I have made of my life something particular and real. I don't want to find myself sighing and frightened or full of argument. I don't want to end up Simply having visited this world. So, can we hold these three perspectives in our heart to be curious about it, to say I don't want to die, and to say no problem? You know, that's all. It's all there. That's why it's such a great teaching. of free is pre, P-R-I, and it means, quite simply, love. When we let, when we let go or we renounce a happiness that's totally dependent on pleasure, uh, then love often becomes courage, because we never know what's going to happen. And so this brings us to the last heavenly messenger, which is um, the samana, the renunciate, one who has become peaceful, renunciation. And you might wonder, well, what does renunciation have to do with old age or sickness, disease, and death? Renunciation is simply letting go. on retreat, we tend to slow down and become very quiet. We go deep inside to rest the mind. And it's out of this stillness or rest um, that renewal comes. And the renewal is actually a kind of cleansing. What we're cleansing is our perception. We're cleansing our awareness of what's happening moment by moment. And so there's this great possibility of being able to see more and more clearly. That's what Vipassana means, to see clearly. And so we can ask ourselves, well, what am I doing here anyway? And what's being a human being all about? You know, what's the meaning? And what's our motivation for practicing? You know, why are we still here? Are we paying attention simply just to be with what's happening, just that? Galway Cannell, in one of his poems, says that the wages of dying is love. The wages of dying is love. And this kind of letting go, renunciation, Letting go of control uh, is what the practice is really bringing for us, This, this letting go of control. And seeing clearly brings wisdom and understanding, which leads to freedom. So a total renunciation would mean letting go of conditioned reality, but also letting go of unconditioned reality. It's letting go of control completely. It's letting go of light, or dark, or lightness of mind, or darkness of mind. It's letting go of health, or sickness. It's letting go of life, or death. So if we feel like we're too ill to move, we can say, well, I'll enjoy my warm bed and meditate. Or maybe we're filled with energy, and we might say, well, I'll climb a mountain today or plow the lower 40. Or maybe we're served a 32-course gourmet meal. Or maybe we're fed the most inferior rice that most of the world eats. Or maybe we have nothing to eat and we just go outside and enjoy the moonlight. Facing that we never know what's going to happen means that we face everything deeply as it happens. And when we can do this, the heart actually becomes very, very light and very, very pure, just like the snow flakes that seem to come down from heaven. The way to this light-hearted, pure equanimity comes from going through boredom. It comes from going through the sense that nothing's happening in our practice over and over. It comes through going through discouragement and endless desires, endless aversion. There's such a potential for the beauty of liberation in our heart. There's a Chinese saying that says, if you keep a green bough in your heart, the singing bird will come. If you keep a green bough in your heart, the singing bird will come. I think of the singing bird um, as the fulfillment of the practice. It's freedom. It's this hallelujah. And the green bow is the renunciation, the letting go over and over and over. The letting go comes from seeing clearly. So being able to let go or renounce merely means that our heart is committed to truth and freedom. Not It doesn't mean that Just somebody in robes, at any moment, we can let go. The four heavenly messengers, I'm testing my short-term memory, the four heavenly messengers, (laughs) old age, (laughs) sickness, (laughs) disease, and death, Um, (laughs) are divine teachers. They're our spiritual teachers or heavenly teachers. And they're not meant to bring us deep into despair. But we go through the sadness or fear or despair to inspiration. They can help us to ask deeply, well, what is important in life? Is tomorrow important? Is yesterday important? Or is our spirit important, our freedom right now? Can we learn to say hello and goodbye to each moment, again and again? If we can do this, we deepen our appreciation of what we're here for, we deepen our sense of appreciation for the preciousness of life and the sacredness of life. And our hearts can be committed to the truth and freedom wherever we are. I had a friend visit me recently here uh, from 20 years ago. No, 23 years ago, and he was um, someone I made Molotov cocktails with my freshman year in college. (laughs) (laughs) And I haven't seen him for 23 years, and the first thing he said to me was, "You made any Molotov cocktails recently?" And it was like, (laughs) and it was a, we were at Springfield College together, and the Black Panthers kept coming up from New Haven, and we. You know, they took over a dorm. and I remember making them, making the Molotov cocktails. I was the only white person in the group. And then I was walking around campus with these Molotov cocktails in my coat. And I could see these FBI agents walking around. And I thought, I don't think this is my path. (laughs) It was one of those turning points in life (laughs) that were really important, to say the least. Uh, (laughs) So I dropped out of school (laughs) to kind of figure out what my path was. Um, And it was really hard for me. to try to open to the anger I felt over racism, racism, not, not ever being able to understand what it's like uh, to be so utterly discriminated against. And I was so angry about all the injustices in this world, uh, but I didn't know how to work with them very skillfully. And I knew at that moment that I just didn't want to perpetuate the anger. I didn't want to perpetuate the destruction. And it was a very, very painful time, actually, for me. And so I, I went um, and took care of my sister's children, uh, and just spent a lot of time connecting again with nature, and uh, um, realizing at that moment, on a very deep level that the spiritual path was my path, and non-harming. And It was really good to see my friend. Uh, He took me to a camp nearby that he went to, and his mother went to this camp, and his sisters went to this camp, and still many people go to this camp because a lot of camps don't take African-Americans, and it's just maybe 15 minutes from here and I had no idea. You know, we have no idea what it's like. So when I say that our hearts can be committed to the truth and to freedom wherever we are, I really believe that this means politically and personally with our relationships and our friendships, with our emotions, with our body, with our intellect. Awareness is the spiritual foundation of freedom. But this means freedom in all aspects of our life. And it means freedom in all aspects of life. Freedom is equally important in any moment. The deepest meaning of Vipassana is having no preferences. This is something Upandita taught me. Only an I has a preference. And being a separate eye is actually an illusion. Renunciation is what helps uh, clean the perception so that we see through this illusion of I. And this understanding that develops is what brings the freedom. And we can um, aspire to a wholeness of this freedom by treating each aspect of life equally and each moment of our life equally. This is an old Native American saying, when you were born, you cried, and the world rejoiced. Live your life in such a manner that when you die, the world cries, and you rejoice. Let's sit for a few minutes.